Welcome to California State of Mind, a new podcast from CalMatters and CAP Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. Well, Elizabeth, are you going to break curfew this weekend? Well, you know, I hadn't planned on being out after 10 o'clock this weekend, but now I sort of feel like I should find something to do at that time. What about you? What are your plans? You know, I don't know the last time I was out of my house after 10 p.m., so that'll probably just stay the same. (laughs) Well, Nicole, most of California is under a curfew order beginning this weekend. It's Friday morning, and this is pretty new. It just happened Thursday afternoon, and I'm sure we don't know everything yet. Yeah, the state announced nearly 38 million Californians will be under a month-long curfew where non-essential businesses and personal gatherings are banned between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., Although that sounds like my life already, Elizabeth. (laughs) Mine too. And here's my question. How does 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. matter? Who's really out at that time? It feels like an action that's not going to affect a majority of people's lives. And are people really going to, say, leave their friend's house early to meet the 10 p.m. curfew if they are out? Plus, you can still get takeout after 10 p.m. So it seems a little messy. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think that that's what a lot of people are trying to figure out right now. Like you have critics saying, you know, by the governor doing this, he's he's basically sending the message that the virus only comes out between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. when we know that's not the case. Um, So a lot of people are asking right now, like, what's the point of this? And then one thing that I've thought of in this year of 2020 with Black Lives Matter is, you know, people talk about unnecessary interactions with law enforcement. And if you're in a community of color, you might worry about coming back from the grocery store after that time or going to get takeout, which is going to be allowed after 10 p.m. And having an interaction where, you know, an officer just decides to stop you if you're black or brown to ask you where you've been and where you're going and you shouldn't be out. And sometimes those interactions don't turn out very well. So people might also be worried about that. That's totally a good point. We hear so much about, you know, rules that apply differently to people of color than they do to white people. Um, And the governor has been trying to focus on equity in the pandemic response and be cognizant of that. But I'm not I don't know if they're really thinking of all of these things when they're making these rules and how they might actually, you know, besides just on paper, how they will actually have real life implications for uh, black and brown Californians. Nicole, that leads me to wonder if this is just the beginning of more restrictions. If the COVID numbers continue to rise, then could we see the curfew get lowered to nine o'clock or eight o'clock or certain businesses have to go back to being closed like they were early on? Uh, And for businesses, this is a big question. That's why this week we're focusing on independent business owners. Yeah, small businesses and large businesses actually have all been through a lot this year. Um, they have had to adapt in a lot of ways, and the the restrictions are changing so often that I know there's a lot of frustration. So I wanted to check in with small business owners from across California to see what they think of this slide backward this week. We all got together before this curfew was announced, but there was still a lot to talk about as far as how these restrictions have been affecting them this year. Rosie Ibarra owns Social Salon Suites in Glendale. She does hair and rents out salon space to more than a dozen other stylists. 
Al Griffin owns Placerville Public House, a pub and restaurant in Placerville, which is in California's gold country. And Jean Marie Moore owns Anasa Yoga in Oakland, but she's retiring at the end of the year and closing her studio. Welcome all of you to California State of Mind. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Rosie, I want to start with you. Um, Hair and nail salons are industries that were in limbo for a really long time this year before getting permission to operate indoors at a limited capacity. How are you doing and the stylists that you rent to? Well, it's definitely challenging, uh, especially since the goalpost keeps moving around. Uh, You know, I feel like we have uh, definitely prepared ourselves with all of the, the PPE equipment and all of the protocols for safety and, uh, and, and for health uh, reasons, you know, I feel like everybody's really been focused on making sure that we keep it safe, but it's been really challenging because uh, people in business, I mean, there's only so many things we can prepare for and we actually need to just start working. Well, since you're a landlord and you're renting out, you know, small spaces to, to stylists to do hair, how is the rent situation going? How are your tenants doing? Have, have these stylists been able to keep up with paying you for rent? So our stylists, thankfully, they have been able to, uh, to be able to maintain uh, their flow of clientele, mainly because the people that rent from us are usually seasoned. But for those who aren't seasoned, it's been a, a really big challenge. It's very volatile. I mean, there's a lot of hairdressers, unfortunately, that we've lost during the first and second closure where they could not go back to renting their business. They literally had to shut down for many reasons for either they haven't been able to get the clientele back um, or they have had to work clandestinely doing house calls. And a lot of them have also had to close their business because they are uh, parents that had to stay home and take care of their children. Al, you're in El Dorado County, which is one of those areas that allowed restaurants to seat people indoors for a little while, but now it's outdoors only, and the weather is getting colder. So what are you planning for your setup this winter? Is it just space heaters on the patio? Yes, we, uh, we've we been bouncing around from, you know, different colored tier to different colored tier. Um, rain did not help yesterday. We have put out the the patio heaters. We're trying to space people out as best we can, keep them, you know, dry and warm. We have a, a partially covered patio, so it helps a little bit. Um, but we are in the street. The city has allowed us uh, a variance to be out in the street and roped off uh, umbrellas, space heaters, you know, doing what we can to, to, to still maintain a sort of business. But um, with the coming elements and the coming winters, it's not looking good. We are in, we are in what are supposed to be our busy part of the season, and we are looking like it's the end of the year already. Talk a little bit more about that because I'm sure that you've invested a lot of money in, you know, adapting this year with more space heaters and moving business sort of outside, um, while at the same time facing, uh, you know, getting less business. Yeah. You know, our, our business model, like I was saying, um, is it's a pub, it's a social atmosphere. We were known for live music. We were known for having this kind of local camaraderie, social, um, gathering place. So immediately the first thing we did was stop music. Um, you know, we felt that was unsafe to have people crowding and gathering in our place. Uh, we shut down our place immediately. We actually didn't even open when we were allowed to open. We just waited, um, until, into June. And I can't complain too much because we've had so much local community support with it. Um, We've managed to keep our numbers up, but, you know, we have 
power outages to deal with. We have, you know, new equipment, like you said, with the heaters, we have, uh, we have scheduling and, and inventory to deal with. Like, do we stock up? Do we not? Do we schedule up? It's been like a roller coaster for us. Well, Jean Marie, you switched to online yoga classes this year. How has that been working? Yes, we did um, switch almost immediately. Um, our county, Alameda County, received the shelter in place orders on March 16th. And we um, shut down immediately that day and um, spent the next day, the 17th, um, getting everybody trained on Zoom. And then on the 18th, started all of our classes online. It started off a little slow. There was this learning curve where folks had to um, learn how to get into Zoom. And plus there was, you know, the recovery from the trauma right away. Moving into shelter in place was very traumatic for a lot of people. And, you know, the first thing that they had to take care of was their households and their families and then get back to their practice. So since then, um, things have been going well. Um, We continued with all of our classes. So we're pretty much running at full capacity Um, we miss our studio, you know, the space, it's been difficult. We've been paying rent, um, all of this time and, um, our landlord was kind enough to reduce the rent, but we kept the space because like a lot of folks, you know, we kept thinking, oh, this will be over. And first it was two weeks, (laughs) then we'll be back in. And then it was a few months and now it looks like it won't be till next year. Well, you're planning on retiring this year. Was that part of your original plan, say, a year ago? Yes, absolutely. I set the goal to retire last October um, and wanted to spend the whole of 2020 looking for a buyer to continue with her legacy. And um, then COVID hit and, you know, who wants to buy a yoga studio in the middle of a pandemic? We did receive um, a PPP loan in April and um, guidelines were changed several times. And then the last um, bulletin we got from SBA in October was that we could not change hands of the business until the PPP loan was forgiven. And of course they are not even accepting forgiveness applications yet. I was gonna ask this question to all of you. How do you think the state government and the federal government have been handling the pandemic. I mean, is there anything that you need as small business owners, whether that's, you know, fewer restrictions or maybe another stimulus package or round of um, funding for small businesses to help them survive the winter? So uh, in my particular business, unfortunately, we were not qualifying for the PPP loan uh, only because uh, as a rental company, as a property management company, we don't have any employees. So this was uh, the only loan that we were able to qualify for was the SBA um, uh, relief fund. Uh, and that was, uh, it's still where we need to pay it back at a low rate, but it is not forgivable. Um, and then as far as any other stimulus package, I mean, it was very, very small compared to the operations that we have. I mean, the rent alone just in our location is over $12,000. So um, yeah, and we're losing, I've lost uh, to date over $200,000. Just this year? Just within the few months. Well, what about restrictions? Is that, um, I know Rosie, you mentioned moving goalposts, Jean Marie or Al, or, are either of you like getting tired of this whiplash of, you know, changing goalposts? My, my problem with it is, 
in our industry, it's, it's, um, I guess all across the board with California, it's been very inconsistent with some of the rules. Um, you know, you have local businesses in, in our community that are, uh, not following any of the guidelines and are busy and are probably making a lot of money with us. We're trying to go with a flow, but you get lashback from customers. You get lashback from the community. Uh, you have to be very careful where you stand, uh, sometimes on these, these issues. So that's the trick is, is, we have a two-sided thing where we're trying to be safe and responsible to our customer base, but we're also trying to stay in business and be here uh, for the customers because if, if we close our doors, what's the point anyways? The PPP loans did help. Um, I don't know that more, you know, funds like that are what we need. It's, it's, you know, almost we need some sort of consistency or some, some sort of better solution. Um, and I don't know what that is right now. Yeah. The, um, PPP loan helped us quite a bit um, because one of the things that it allowed us to do was to um, keep the teacher's salaries the same because I noticed um, when the shutdown happened um, and studios, yoga studios started offering classes online, what they did um, for a couple reasons was they reduced the class prices um, which helped with the community because, you know, a lot of folks were out of work and experiencing financial hardship. So it made the classes more affordable, but at the same time, they reduced the teacher's pay. So what the PPP loan did for us is allowed us to keep um, the teacher's pay exactly the same. And what I wanted to say about the changing goalpost is um, our county, um, I think it was early in the fall, went to allowing fitness centers to um, open at 10% capacity. And for us, that would have meant we have a capacity of anywhere from 30 to 40 students, depending on how close you know we pack everybody in, how close the mats are together. Um, so that would have meant three or four students, and that just was not feasible for us. And then the biggest thing being the mask. Of course, we would require everyone to wear a mask, and um, that's just not comfortable in a, a practice that focuses so much on um, breathing and awareness of the breath. And, you know, in our vinyasa classes, the breath can get pretty intense. And so I think that even with the mask, there was still the risk of um, spreading infection. So... Uh, we wouldn't have opened under any situation, personally me, um, until this virus is under control. Well, Jean Marie Moore of Anasa Yoga, Al Griffin with Placerville Public House, and Rosie Ibarra of Social Salon Suites, thank you all so much for joining us and best of luck to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Elizabeth, after that news about the curfew came out, I called Al back and he said pretty much the same thing, that this is just another rule that he has to adapt to with no help or guidance from any level of the government, the state, his county, his city. Um, but he said he's going to try to comply. And that means closing up his kitchen an hour earlier on the weekends. All of this just shows that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for the businesses in California. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting when Al said that he doesn't think another round of stimulus is the answer for his business. He really just wants consistency here. And now so do many Californians. We'll be right back.
Since the election, there has been a lot of chatter, analysis, and hand-wringing over the so-called Latino vote. That's because Latinos in certain parts of the country, like Miami and South Texas, voted for Trump in numbers that really captured the media's attention. Even though in other places like Arizona, Texas, and Nevada, Latinos overwhelmingly supported Joe Biden. True. But for those who have been paying attention to the Latino electorate and know anything about Latinos, the drama about the folks who did vote for Trump, well, it seems overdone. The discussion is super myopic, as if all Latinos are the same. And Latinos, like everyone else, have different political views based on their own lives, their religion, their education, where they were born. So it's no surprise that they voted from that personal experience. Well, this isn't new, especially for Californians. We're such a diverse state, but we're also such a big state. I think it's easy for people to forget just how big a population 40 million is, especially the national media. So, of course, there's even a lot of diversity among these diverse groups. To dig deeper into what really is going on with the Latino vote, which we know is not a monolith, I invited Sonia Diaz, founder of the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative, and Gustavo Arellano, LA Times columnist and author of Ask a Mexican and Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, to talk about it. Sonia, Gustavo, welcome to California State of Mind. Gracias. Awesome. Thanks for having us. So, Sonia, to start, can you take us back to election night or the morning after and the initial hot takes coming from media about the, quote, Latino vote? What was your mindset when you first began encountering these conversations? Yeah, they weren't new because I was fielding a lot of calls from journalists, particularly those infatuated with conservative voters in Florida. And in some ways, they kind of had their finger on the pulse about Trump's support going up uh, in that state and in some other jurisdictions across the country. It was part of the story, and by part, I mean a minuscule part. It's no surprise for many people. We know that Latinos are a very heterogeneous uh, racial ethnic group. And we also know that Cubanos historically have leaned conservative and supported the Republican ticket. But what I was most encouraged by was Arizona and the work done on the ground by civil society groups and community organizers in response to regressive policy, frankly. And all of a sudden, they're sending President-elect Joe Biden to the White House and another Democrat to the United States Senate. So election night was a roller coaster, but it seemed that the underrepresentation of diverse voices, particularly Latino voices in, in major news organizations, were just all about these Cubans that voted for Trump, the only demographic to choose him over VP Biden in the country. Uh, Gustavo, what did you think about that sort of election night morning after uh, review of what happened with the vote? Well, I, I wasn't surprised at all. My work at the Los Angeles Times, frankly, I was warning people, don't think that all Latinos are going to go automatically to the Democratic Party and not just those mythical Cubans with a smattering of Nicaraguans who are eternally conservative. In fact, all my colleagues at the LA Times, we had done like this warning. Uh, Melissa Gomez did a story early in the campaign cycle about Latino evangelicals and why so many of them were with Trump. And what I focused on was here in Orange County, which of course the national media in 2018 all said, oh my God, Orange County is blue. That means a 
Democrats are going to rule forever. If they could take over Orange County, then they could take over anywhere. Well, the savior for the uh, Republican Party of Orange County was a young man by the name of Randall Avila, a Chicano from Monterey Park, which is right next to East L.A. And he told me the story about how his dad, who's a security guard, working class guy, had never even bothered to register his vote to vote his entire life until 2016 when he decided to vote for Donald Trump. So what I what I classify, especially with the Mexican-Americans who did vote for Trump, I made up the term of Rancho Libertarianism, this idea that even especially among the Mexican-American community, there remains a strain of conservatism that goes back to either, you know, your rural upbringing like my parents in Mexico. And so, I, you know, me always just looking aside, away from the rest of the media, just laughed at how so many people were shocked that, yes, Latinos can vote uh, Republican and even Mexican-Americans. So, Sonia, let's let's give people a baseline here. How did Latinos really vote? What did the numbers look like? The majority of Latino voters in Florida supported VP Biden. If you cut it by a racial ethnic group amongst Latinos, Puerto Ricans overwhelmingly had the highest favorability in ballots cast for VP Biden. Um, on the low end of that spectrum were Cuban-Americans in Miami-Dade. There's a lot of reasons for that. The Republican Party, unlike the other party, actually doubled down and spent a lot of money focused on the nuance and in many ways have ceded power to Cubanos. And we see this with U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. Has California done that? No. If you look across the country through our research at UCLA made clear that in some places, Latinos were really that small slithering of voters who overwhelmingly in their preference for BP Biden joined and coalesced with black voters in a minority, a minority of white voters to send VP Biden to the White House in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, and in Georgia. Now, as you go west, you see the impact of the Latino vote clearly in Nevada, Colorado, and Arizona. Arizona, Maricopa, Yuma, Pima counties between 74% and 80% vote share for VP Biden. Now, Nevada and Arizona were only visited by VP Biden once during the general election. And so a lot of the focus here is really the story of trusted messengers in the time of COVID and the science fiction of voter suppression, misinformation, and a global pandemic to still come out and vote and cast that ballot for the Democratic ticket. The other thing about Florida, Texas, and Arizona is that those are conservative states, and they have been. And they're going to stay that way unless the other side wants to double down and expand the electorate instead of spending their money persuading white voters not to do what they said they were going to do. You talked about the Republican Party doubling down in Florida. And I know I also read that there was a lot more GOP outreach in South Texas as well, just from people on the ground and having rallies. And so that that contact makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, in-person contact and mobilization and engagement is the number one way to persuade somebody. So at a time when we're dealing with coronavirus pandemic, there are ways to practice physical distancing. But we also know the Democratic Party really didn't go and start knocking doors until October, if that. Yeah, no, the Democrats totally took Latinos for granted, especially Mexican-Americans. Really, the outreach that the Biden campaign did, uh, there was a video of Biden playing Despacito on his cell phone. And then there was a YouTube uh, videos uh, featuring songs by Bad Bunny, the reggaeton superstar, and Alejandro Fernandez, the ranchera superstar. That's not how you get Latinos out to vote for you. Let's put it this way. Biden's lucky that he's got he got as many Latinos as he did. And it wasn't because of Biden. It was, as Sonia said, because of decades of mobilization 
radicalization against a Republican Party that for far, you know, for far too long preached the gospel of xenophobia and in those areas is now reaping, uh, unwittingly reaping the benefits of it to the Democrats' advantage, of course. And this is something that I predict, especially with Trump. Well, maybe, you know, Trump's xenophobia won him some Latinos in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to have a whole generation. Like in California, it's Prop 187. In Arizona, it's SB 1070. Maybe this generation, it's going to be Trump. So what about California? What do we know about Latino voters here based on who they are and where they live? We're still looking at the data, but there's a few things to understand about California is that California has a very diverse Latino population, but at the root is Mexican-Americans and Central Americans. We're also very youthful, akin to other places, and we're numerous. And I think that the things that matter here are what campaigns, candidates, and parties actually did meaningful investment to the Latino electorate in majority minority districts, but then also in influence districts. Um, Gustavo talked about Orange County. It was historical in 2018. Latino voters had a hand in turning the red curtain to a Democratic bastion that was going to flip the House of Representatives. Now, that can't just be the same thing election from election without any investments. Why? We don't do that with white voters. We spend all this money persuading them every single election, whether they're likely or not. Gustavo, you wrote a column after the election that I was like, yes, yes, yes. You pointed out that you're tired of explaining how there are Latino conservatives and that not all Latinos are the same. How long have you been hearing this? And did you think the discussion was even more elevated this year or is it about the same as you hear all the time? No. I mean, how many cliches have been made about Latino voters? We were the sleeping giant. And then once we started voting, we started flexing our muscle. Now the cliche is Latinos are not a monolith. And a lot of this is, of course, the East Coast media whose ideas of Latinos is going down to, uh, you know, Spanish Harlem and getting some Dominican food. It's very, very limited. So, you know, at least Latino pundits or Latino reporters were sick and tired of having to explain what our community is and the nuances for better or for worse. And the danger in that for people not knowing this is then all of a sudden they're surprised that Latinos might have gone so hard for Bernie Sanders. I mean, I also think one of the big factors, especially in Los Angeles and in California, Bernie overwhelmingly won California. And it was because his campaign, like Sonia has been pointing out, invested in Latino voters. Meanwhile, the national media is like, oh my God, wow, like Latinos... I thought they were Catholic, but they're voting for Bernie Sanders. But wait, they're also voting for Donald Trump. Aren't you supposed to hate Donald Trump? Like, get with the program, people. Get a friend who's Latino, who's not in academia or is not a white collar worker. Uh, Hang out with the working class, with the blue collars. How much of this is about liberal and conservative? Is it really a Trump factor movement or there are all these underlying factors, right? Yeah, it all depended because every single Latino who supported Trump is going to be different. You have the evangelicals who really think Biden is the devil. You have uh, the Catholics. You know, I know a lot of Catholics in my, not in my family, but Catholics that I know who do not like Trump at all. But for them, abortion is the only issue that matters. And they thought Kamala Harris was going to unleash an avalanche of abortions on on the United States. Then you have, you know, just, oh gosh, I, I cannot tell you how many uh, people that I know, you know, blue, blue collar workers, mechanics. 
mechanics and, uh, you know, construction workers. They said, well, you know, Trump gave me money for the pandemic and my taxes are lower. Lower. I don't like what he says about Mexicans, but whatever hasn't affected me. So I'm going to vote for him as well. So Trumpism does. I mean, again, there is a strain of that Trumpism in the Latino community. And I would argue specifically in the Mexican-American community, if the Republican Party had been smart and they're never smart, they would have capitalized on that so long ago. But instead, they went the Pete Wilson route, which is let's demonize, let's capitalize on our white voters who are scared to death of these Mexicans. Let's just alienate these Mexicans. The fact that Trump got even 20 percent of the vote as as much as he did, that does not portend well for the Democratic Party agenda if they're going to continue doing what the Biden campaign did. Frankly, they got to listen to the Bernie Sanders folks. Let me interject here because I think the story is not Latinos voting for Trump. Like, who cares? The story is this election, this presidential election, cost $14 billion. And we know where that money went. Went to Wisconsin, to Michigan, to Pennsylvania, and maybe Ohio. And now we know how those votes turned out. In 2016, 54% of white women supported Donald Trump. In 2020, that went up 56%. That's the story. That's the story. And here's the thing. Public opinion polling told us that. They told us that Trump's base is that. We've seen four years of misinformation, falsified facts, uh, chaos in our democracy. And yet these voters were still, yep, 100, batting 100 for Trump. What I didn't expect is that having only one stimulus check and hundreds of thousands of Americans whose lives were cut short unnecessarily would still yield that level of support. That is the story. Now, on the flip side, the only reason that VP Biden and Senator Harris, now vice president-elect, are even in the White House is a story of people who have overcome structural racism and barriers to get to the polls. And these are black voters, Latino voters, indigenous voters in the Navajo Nation in Arizona, and a minority of white voters. That's the story. This idea that Latinos are supposed to vote uniformly just negates the fact that we're heterogeneous and that we are full individuals who should be able to have access to choice. And any sort of coverage that is victim-blaming, negates public opinion polling, negates empirical data that has made clear that a slithering of Latinos historically have been Republican. Now, if someone wants to do something about that, stop spending all your money on persuading white voters and start expanding the electorate. So one thing that really strikes me every election is that white voters are not categorized the same way as Latino voters or black voters, right? They're rural, they're suburban, they're educated, they're blue collar, they're working class, wealthy Midwesterners, coastal elites, they're religious. And even then, there are groups of those folks who say, oh, that's not me. I'm not that suburban white woman, right? But Latinos could fit into any of those categories. Why don't we see this type of understanding and nuance around Latinos? Because Latinos remain invisible in American society. This is true of media and entertainment, the stories that are told, the characters that we're always typecast in, our newsrooms, our elected offices, our philanthropic C-suite, and then you can even look at academia. And so there's purposeful policy behind that. And then there's also just this willful neglect. Purposeful policy is saying we don't want affirmative action in California. Willful neglect is... The state of California, neither party is ever going to get behind, nor have they, a Latino candidate for governor or for U.S. Senate. That's willful neglect. 
And all of that means is that we don't have a full, dynamic, nuanced picture of Latinos in the United States of California. Latinos are always going to be invisible because we're always going to be the other. It's once we become the majority of voters. And then at that point, we're no longer Latinos. We're just the majority of voters. Uh, you know, like look at Los Angeles, Los Angeles being so Latino, uh, Santana, certain cities. But on a national level, we're always going to be considered a, a minority, uh, even even though we're the largest majority, even at some point in the future, we're going to have such a profound demographic impact on the rest of the United States, but we're always going to be the other. I mean, that, I mean, look, uh, the, the first encounter between uh, the United States and Latinos, uh, no, the initial encounters, and some could argue the eternal encounter is always going to be that of conquest, that of conflict. And until that idea gets shifted, we're still going to be the other. Thank you so much, Sonia Diaz of the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative and Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times for joining us today. Thanks so much. Gracias. It was great to talk to Sonia and Gustavo after being inundated with the media perspective of the so-called Latino vote. They really were able to break it down and remind us that Latinos are like any other group. They're diverse in many ways, just like other voters. They're urban, rural, religious, they're educated, they're blue collar, and all of the different ways that we usually just think about white voters. It's so true. And the media is running all of these stories, has been since the election, but We have also had our own sort of reckoning over race this year. A lot of newsrooms are grappling with the fact that they're run mostly by white men and white women. And that contributes to the criticism of these types of stories in the aftermath of the election. Exactly. Which both Sonia and Gustavo said has to change if the coverage is going to change. And they meant across the board, from writers to editors to those behind the scenes. Otherwise, Latinos and other diverse groups continue to be considered others. Yeah, and we really don't want that to continue. If you'd like to share your experience as a Latino voter or as a small business owner dealing with COVID restrictions, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at Your Golden State. We won't have a new episode next week, so have a safe Thanksgiving. Take care, and we'll see you in December. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. California State of Mind.